Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus, increment 166. And as we approach the word for what I'm going to be calling inferences part one, implying or you can infer from that that we're going to have a part two in the next increment. Before we approach the word of God, we'll pray. Father, today we entrust our spirit to you, to be taught of you. We entrust our soul to your care, the care of a faithful creator. And we entrust our body to you and to your service. And Father, may the words of my mouth today be acceptable in your sight so that I do not say anything today of which I will be ashamed when I see you face to face. I ask this in Christ's name, amen. Inferences part one. I'm going to be bold to say this, the inference of universal salvation. As I've stressed more than once, that which sets our commentary on Hebrews apart from others is that ours has an emphasis on the sure hope of a cosmic redemption, a universal and eternal salvation accomplished by God's unrestricted love and made possible by the solidarity of Jesus, God's son, with all of humanity in the wider context of all creation and all of time and history. Now, I want to make this very obvious and clear. Hebrews is not itself a treatise on eternal and universal salvation. Hebrews, rather, is a strong word of exhortation through a teaching pastor with the spiritual gifts, plural, of teaching and exhortation. Both of these are gifts given by grace and practiced in grace. Teaching as a gift, which functions according to the grace of God, according to Romans 12.6, appears in two inflections. I hope that's familiar to you, polypteton. It appears in two inflections in the Greek text of Romans 12.7. It says the one who teaches ought to teach. And you'll see this in print. Ho didaskon en te didaskalia. So we have an example of polypteton, two inflections for emphasis. So the one who teaches ought to teach. He is to, as we say, stick to his knitting. In fact, teaching ought to have the effect of knitting souls together, according to Colossians 2.19, and of course not dividing souls from one from another. Those with the gift of teaching ought to give attention to teaching. doesn't mean they have to do it formally. It means they can do it conversationally. They can be apt to teach in their families, in their conversations, in being able to teach those who ask questions, those who are inquisitive, 
those who are without hope in this world. So those with the gift of teaching ought to give attention to teaching, to engage in teaching. In my case, I taught by request of an individual in his home because he perceived probably before I did that I had the gift of teaching, so I taught a Bible study in his home while I was going to Bible college. <clears throat> so I just began to teach. Had nothing to do with being a pastor or being formally a teacher. It just was at someone's request. And so the teaching pastor who wrote Hebrews, and he was a teaching pastor, also had the gift of exhortation or encouragement. He had the gift of being able to impart incentive to his readers and listeners to catalyze and facilitate their spiritual progress in grace. Exhortation, as it's called, as a spiritual gift, is also emphasized by two inflections, or a polyptaton of the Greek word meaning to exhort or to encourage. In Romans 12.6, it says, If exhorting is your gift, then exercise it by exhorting. Parakelon ente paraklese, two inflections of the same verb parakaleo, which means to encourage. To exhort doesn't mean that you holler at people, that you scold or upbraid people in a congregation. It doesn't mean that you use your congregation as a sounding board for your own emotional failures. Exhortation is an impartation of incentive. It can involve rebuke and correction, but exhortation as a spiritual gift is, has to do with the impartation of incentive and momentum to people for spiritual growth. The idea is if you have the gift of teaching, then you better teach. If you have the gift of encouragement, then you better encourage. Better not hide these lit candles under a basket, is the idea. Now, a dramatic illustration of polyptaton is from Sergio Leone's great The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, which is the mother of all spaghetti western movies. Tuco is the ugly. He was played memorably by the late Eli Wallach. And in a scene after he shoots a talkative man who is about to shoot him, Tuco says, when you have to shoot, shoot, don't talk. When you have to shoot, one inflection, shoot, another inflection, don't talk. Well, when you have to teach, teach. Don't be silent. When you have to encourage, encourage. Don't be shy. Hebrews is an exquisite example of the work of a man with the gifts of teaching and of exhortation. In fact, the last two sentences in Albert Van Hoy's extraordinary commentary on Hebrews is precisely to this point. They read like this. The homily contained in the letter to the Hebrews is the only example in the New Testament of a homily that has come down to us in its entirety. This example gives us 
a very lofty idea of the doctrinal and exhortatory richness. Notice it says the doctrinal and exhortatory richness of preaching in the early years of the church. Now, if Hebrews is an example of a homily and of preaching in the early days of the church, you don't want to compare some of the sermons we hear on TV today or from pulpits today or my own messages today with that homily. Hebrews is a word of exhortation, as we know from Hebrews 13.22, but it's balanced by a treasury of teaching and of exposition. It is not, and I want to make this very clear, because some things that, you, that are inferred have more power than things that are declared explicitly. Things that we have to infer from statements made often stick with us longer than things that are simply declared in a catechism. You say this, I say this, you answer this. Who is God? God is so-and-so. Who, how do we know God, etc.? You answer the question. It's a declaration is made to you. You accept the declaration. You don't think about it. You recite it. You rehearse it. I don't think that's a way of ultimately learning doctrine, though it's probably valuable for children. But Hebrews is a word of exhortation balanced by a treasury of teaching and exposition. It is not a treatise or a dissertation on eternal and universal salvation. This is not what we get explicitly from simply reading and studying Hebrews. But this is most assuredly what can be inferred from a careful reading and a careful study of Hebrews. It is the reality that is there to be discovered. A reality that is there to be discovered like a pearl of great price. Jesus is that reality. Jesus is that pearl of great price. God, our creator, has designed us human beings with capacity to inquire, to discover, to be lit by insights, to inquire further, to reflect, to make inferences, to come to sound judgments. You were designed that way, made that way. The ability to make judgments after reflection on insights received through inquiry was called by John Henry Newman the illative sense. Illative sense. And it is spelled, he, caps, he capitalizes it, but the illative, I-L-L-A-T-I-V, sense. In fact, on page 274 of his famous book called An Essay on the Grammar of Ascent, he offered a succinct definition of the illative sense. Thus, this power of judging and concluding when in its perfection I call the illative sense. So the illative sense is a power of judging and concluding. Now, Newman related this to Aristotle's word, the Greek word phronesis or phronesis, 
P-H-R-O-N-E-S-I-S. Phronesis. And this is an Aristotelian word, a famous Aristotelian word. It has to do with the middle term and with wisdom that finds the moderate or middle term. And so, again, the word is also a Bible word. It's used in Jeremiah 10.12 in the Septuagint, which says, It's the Lord who made the earth by his strength, who restored the inhabited earth in his wisdom and stretched out the sky in his phronesis. Phronesis. His understanding is how it's translated there. Newman, and evidently Aristotle, took it as judgment in the sense of the intellectual ability to conclude properly. In the old Greek text of Daniel 2.23, Daniel gives thanks to God saying, you have given me wisdom, that's Sophia, and intelligence. That's phronesin. Sophian kai phronesin. This word is likewise deployed in Hebrew, in rather in Ephesians 1.8, a passage we just looked at lately in the context of anakephaleosis panton, the summing up of everything in Christ in 1.10. But in Ephesians 1.8, Paul speaks of the riches of God's grace, leading from 1.7, which he lavished on us, says 1.8, with all wisdom and understanding. Same duo, Sophia kai phronesi. Same as in Daniel 2.23. God has lavished upon us phronesi, which is what? Phronesis. It's the ability to conclude after investigation. God has lavished upon us not only the riches of his grace, he has also heaped on us wisdom or the capacity for insight and understanding, which is the capacity to make judgments or to come to correct or intelligent conclusions after reflection. You're made that way, designed that way. God, the creator of your soul, made you that way. So we're actually being responsible when we come to judgments after reflection, responsible reflection, when we are attentive, when we are intelligent, reasonable, responsible. When Lonergan wrote Insight, which he always called tongue-in-cheek his little book, my little book, he intended it to be an essay on the understanding of human understanding. Authentic human understanding is reached by making a virtually unconditioned judgment or conclusion following reflection that has followed insight arrived at from inquiry which began with wonder. So let's take that in reverse. Wonder leading to inquiry, leading to insight, leading to reflection, leading to judgment, leading to a judgment that is not conditioned, that's unconditional, because you've asked every relevant question about it and answered it, and you've answered every 
reasonable objection to it. So it becomes a virtually unconditioned judgment. And to you, it becomes certitude, absolute confidence. We've looked at it before. The fullness of hope or the full assurance of hope. So for this reason... Phronesis can properly be understood as judgment. Phronesis is probably akin to the word, this is my theory at least, sophronismos, which is found in 2 Timothy 1.7. The Holman Christian Standard Bible has a good translation of that verse. It says, for God has not given us a spirit of fearfulness, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. Sophronismos, I think it's related to phronesis, the ability to make sound judgments, come to solid conclusions. Sound judgment then is sophronismos. You'll see that in print in Greek. Again, let it be noted that God has given us sound judgment, the capacity to make intelligent, reasonable, and responsible conclusions. Doctrines we call them, that's a specialty, a theological functional specialty, formulation of doctrines. Doctrines are constructed from an accumulation of judgments. An accumulation of judgments on a certain subject, say universal salvation, becomes a doctrine about which one may have certitude and which one may acknowledge with bold confidence. Certitude is arrived at by a host of inferences from the authoritative source of Scripture. I'll say that again. Certitude is arrived at by a host of inferences from the authoritative source of Scripture. Certitude, like the illative sense of John Henry Newman, is absolute assurance based on judgments against which no sane objections can be successful and which no more reasonable questions can be asked. The capacity to make sound judgments after reflection is a gift from God. It's not because someone is particularly smart. It's a gift from God, and God has given that gift to everyone. Capacity to make sound judgments after reflection is a gift from God. In my case, I came to the conclusion that God saves all through Jesus Christ because God gifted me, as he gifted you, with judgment. This judgment was made fearlessly with the spirit of love. When I finally made the judgment. Before earnestly exercising the gift of sophronismos, when I was just a Christian that listened to tradition, before I accepted the phronesis and used it and earnestly exercised, implemented, and executed my own ability to inquire, to wonder, to inquire, to have insight to test insights with reflection, to come to conclusions, and to even test those conclusions under serious deliberation until they became virtually unconditioned conclusions. Before I did that, 
we might say, before I did my own thinking. Or we might say, before I exercised critical realism. I accepted the fearful and unloving dogma of an eternal post-mortem hell, of endless and unmitigated horror, and suffering for the vast, unrepentant portion of humanity. It's a hell of a thing to accept. It was only after years long, and I mean many years long, implementation of the gift of judgment, which we all have, that I came to be persuaded otherwise. God freely gave us this intellective capacity, we might call it. Though like the riches of his grace, the gift of judgment often remains a lit candle under a bushel basket. Often people don't come to certain conclusions or judgments on their own because they're content to take their stand on certain doctrines or dogmas that have come down to them by human tradition. They choose not to investigate for themselves using the cognitive and intellective tools that God gave to us and apply them to the study of the scripture. Other people disown the scriptures altogether because they too are too lazy to investigate for themselves what they say. Sometimes Christians don't ask questions out of fear of being ostracized or criticized or deviating from long-held traditions that form a kind of group bias that is intolerant of differences. It was Newman's book called An Essay in Aid of a Grammar of Ascent, which he took 20 years to write, incidentally, and which it's going to take probably 20 years for me to read with complete comprehension. I'm just hitting bits and pieces here and there. It was that book that helped launch Bernard Lonergan's little book called Insight. Now, I read Insight with a small degree of comprehension. Insight was not a treatise on eternal and universal salvation was not that. However, from my reading of Insight, I made an inference, that's our subject today, inferences. I made an inference from one of the things Lonergan wrote regarding the solution to the problem of evil. And that's an Insight, pages 718 to 750 in that little book, under the title, The Heurist Heuristic Structure of the Solution. Now, in the second of 31 paragraphs dealing with the solution, that's the only book I ever read where paragraphs begin with 28thly, 29thly, 30thly, 31stly. Well, there was 31 paragraphs, and in the second of 31 paragraphs dealing with the structure of the solution to the problem of evil, Lonergan wrote, the solution will be universally accessible and permanent. That was his second of 31 paragraphs. Now, that jumped out to me. The proposition, quote, the solution will be universally accessible, led me to inquire 
But will this universally accessible solution be universally applied? So from this query, I investigated the scriptures. To sum up a long and arduous journey, I was able to answer with an affirmative, yes, this accessible solution will be universally applied, or we could say has been, or is being. Yahweh, I am that I am, is a name that concludes all tenses, verbal tenses. I was what I was, I am what I am, and I will be what I will be. And so salvation is in all those three tenses. In the continuum called eternity, it's all done. But I don't want to get off track too much there yet. So to sum up a long, arduous journey, I was able to say, yes, the problem, solution to the problem of evil is to be, and in one real sense, in Jesus has been universally applied by God to all of humanity and to all the universe of proportionate being over the entire stretch of time and history. In Christ, all of humanity will be made alive. Not alive to suffer, but alive beyond suffering with Christ's own resurrected life, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Because God universally applied to all of humankind the universally accessible solution to the problem of evil, which is sin and death. The solution is the redemption that is in Christ Jesus and the justification of all the human race through the singular righteous act of one Jesus Christ. Paragraph one, he says the solution is one. I will say it again. The solution is the redemption that is in Christ Jesus and the justification of all the human race through the singular righteous act of one Jesus Christ. Romans 5.18. Moreover, because the problem of evil profoundly affected the whole of creation, The solution to the problem of evil, that being sin in the cosmos and its resultant inexorable march to corruption and death called entropy. So the solution to the problem of evil was universally applied by God and will result or has resulted, depending on what perspective you have, in the liberation of all of creation from its slavery to corruption, Romans 8.21, and the total destruction of death in 1 Corinthians 15.26, the last enemy to be destroyed. Now, I just gave you a greatly condensed summary of a quest that began with an inquiry and led to many inferences and then to a virtually unconditioned conclusion that the salvation that God is and that God made effective through Jesus Christ and by the spirit of grace is not only universally accessible but will be or on the plane of existence and essence above the corporeal and the temporal levels has been 
universally applied. Also, well, Hebrews, got to keep remembering that's where we are. And so in Hebrews, though not intended by the teaching and exhorting pastor to be a treatise on universal salvation by inference, and I'm going to explain more about what this means in our next increment, by inference, universal salvation is a reality, with a capital R, that can be and should be discovered and celebrated in Hebrews. Seeing Jesus is seeing this reality. The reality of a permanent solution to the problem of evil, of sin, and death. And of the universal accessibility of that solution. And not only universally humanly accessible, but universally divinely applied. That which is humanly accessible or accessible to humans will be and has been and is being divinely, universally applied. The exhortation aspect of Hebrews is aimed at the readers taking advantage of that accessibility even now. Not everybody does. Not in this age. For this reason, the PT urges his readers to access the divine, universal, salvific solution. You can access it even now in this evil age. That's why Hebrews 10, which kicks off a most powerful and lengthy exhortation, starting at 1019, going through 1039, then flying into a definition of faith and then the catalog of faith heroes, which a sequel, a sequel to which is being written even today. But Hebrews 10, 19 to 22 reads this way, therefore, you know what that is? Therefore, un, O-U-N, it's an inferential particle. Introduces an inference. An inference drawn from the final an unrepeatable sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which has been discussed up to this point, ending with 1018. Therefore, inferential particle, siblings, having confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a recently paved and living road. That's my translation. It's pretty remarkable here. It doesn't just mean a fresh and living way. It means a recently paved and living road. We're talking about a major highway here to emphasize what's going on. And since it says, by a recently paved and living road through the curtain, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, and we learn that the house of God is not just Israel, it's not just the church, it's the universe. The builder and maker of all things has built a house called the universe. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, which is now the universe, not just Israel, let us approach with a true heart in the full assurance. There's your illative sense, pleroforia. There's your certitude. Because of the making of many inferences, it combined to make a certitude. 
Therefore, approach with a true heart and full assurance of faith, our hearts having been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I think that's a reference to the Levitical priests before entering into their priestly ministry. And it's therefore a washing of the water of the word in typology. That which is universally accessible is certainly not humanly accessed by everyone in this age. But it will be, and it has been, divinely universally applied. God will ultimately apply the solution to the problem of evil to everyone, even to those who don't take access or enter into the access of it now. So here's my exhortation to you today and to myself. Let us access that which is universally accessible while we can choose to do so, while it's called today. Interestingly, Newman himself saw the, quote, what he called old prophecies, that means the prophecies of the prophets of the Old Testament, especially of Isaiah, and, quote, the picture which they draw of the universality of the kingdom of the Messiah as not being so clear in, say, the book of Revelation. He, he actually said that. He said it's amazing that the universality of the kingdom of the Messiah in Isaiah isn't so easily found in the Apocalypse, which we call the Book of Revelation. He saw a great contrast, in fact, between the predictions of Isaiah, exclamation point, he says, and the Apocalypse, the Book of Revelation. A great difference. I say that's interesting that Newman saw the universality of Messiah's kingdom in Isaiah, but not in the Apocalypse, because in my case, I saw the universality of Messiah's kingdom, which I call the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, in the Apocalypse as clearly as I saw it in Isaiah. In fact, in, before I saw it in Isaiah. Again, Hebrews was assuredly not written as a treatise on universal salvation. But universal salvation is a truth that can be inferred from Hebrews by making a series of inferences that result in certitude as it can be inferred from a study of Romans. In fact, Romans makes some pretty explicit statements of universal salvation. And so, universal salvation can be inferred in a study of Romans, where it's more than inferred, and of Revelation, and not only all the New, but all the Old Testament, too. I think Origen, that's O-R-I-G-E-N, was right to hold that the Old and New Testaments constitute a unity even though he went further and considered that unity of the Old and New Testaments to, quote, constitute one body, namely the body of Christ. In any case, the unity of the Testaments and the solidarity of the entire Bible is the reason why the universality of the kingdom of the Messiah can be affirmed both in Isaiah and in Revelation 
in all the prophets in Acts 3.21 and in all of Paul's epistles in 2 Peter 3.15. Newman's strong suit then was not an understanding of universal salvation in the New Testament, but it, evidently his strong suit was not bibliology. But his dissertation on the illative sense was a very strong suit and a wonderful essay, a dissertation worth studying. And admittedly, to me, it was very difficult. It's a very difficult study, and I'm going to spend some time, hopefully a little here and a little there until I complete it. But that which we affirm using the illative sense often is received more forcefully and stays with us longer than something simply told us. Now, somebody told you, God is going to save everybody. Well, the first thing you do if you haven't really studied the subject out is bristle like I did and react passionately, if not violently, to that, verbally violently. But if through your own study and through the inferences you make in your own capacity called phronesis, which God has heaped upon us, and you really took the time and the blood and the sweat and the tears to study for yourself, and you saw the scriptures infer universal salvation, you might be excited about it, and you might even be positive toward the notion. And so, when I see people bristle at the subject or tell people to get the hell out of that guy's church because he teaches it or something like that, I don't get upset because I know that those kind of things reveal a heart that hasn't done the homework and doesn't, hasn't done the work and hasn't sweat. So I have no problem with that at all. So that which we infer using what Newman called the illative sense is often received more forcefully and stays with us longer than something simply told us. In fact, consider what can be inferred by the passage under our present scrutiny. Hebrews 6, 16 to 20. What a weird way to approach our passage, but listen to it. Now, men customarily swear oaths by something greater than themselves, and for them the oath for confirmation is the end of all contradiction. Now, when you come to certitude, you've come to the end of all contradiction. When you come to a judgment after reflection, a virtually unconditioned judgment, then there's no more contradiction. You have a mouth and a wisdom which your, gain, which your opponents can't, can neither gainsay nor resist, as Jesus says. In other words, you personally have taken, entertained every question that would result in doubt. You have taken on every reasonable objection and refuted it so that you're left without contradiction and therefore you have certitude you have yourself a doctrine and a doctrine that you have with certitude can be acknowledged with boldness I think I'm tapping into the essence of Hebrews here by doing this approaching it this way so 
When God, verse 17, determined to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of promise, he interposed with an oath so that by two immutable things, verse 18, in both of which God is not able to lie, we who have fled for refuge would have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. Very strong language in this whole thing. Which hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and secure. There's your certitude. There's your illative sense. A hope that enters into the sanctuary behind the curtain. That's the second curtain that goes into the holiest place of all in the heavenlies, where a forerunner has already entered for us. Jesus, having become an archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek, Archierus genomenos aiston eona. We're going to be examining these phrases in future increments. This entire increment, tough thing to do to people on a Sunday, maybe. Well, it's been a challenge to use the gift of phronesis that God has lavished upon you. Now, today's message, therefore, today's increment may have required a higher level of concentration than you're used to. That's not a bad thing. It's time to let dear prudence come out and play. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. And I pray that it will result in the listeners truly being challenged to use their own capability of sound judgment. I personally thank you that you've given me and to all, and all believers a spirit not of timidity or fear, but a spirit of love and of power and of sound judgment. May we use this to your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.